0: My name is Peter, I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'm uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, thank the committee for having uh, Marion and I here um, to share our experience, strength, and hope. It's a treat when her and I get out to speak together, do a workshop, and sometimes she, she accompanies me and vice versa. Uh, Marie, it's always great to spend time with you. Uh, I have to make sure I tell the truth tonight because her husband is my sponsor. <laughs> And great to see Kent and uh, some of the other folks here. So I thank you for feeding me, all the speakers, uh, since I got here. Grateful to be part of this sacred fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you haven't experienced the the sacredness of AA, I pray you stick around long enough to experience how we get reborn and resurrected in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. How I was given some integrity and some dignity just by walking in the door and having the elders around me, which were a Band-Aid on an open wound when I arrived. Uh, I got here after uh, seven treatment centers. I got here by way of being homeless and living in the back of an abandoned building and pretty much giving up on everything, including God, who I despise, including AA, I thought it was a cult, including treatment centers, who I knew they just wanted my money, and it went on and on and on. Any one of my crosshairs I would blame, but God forbid I would take my own inventory. And that was done for me on June 23, 1988, when God separated me f- for alcohol. And uh, I'm very grateful for this gift of sobriety that God a day at a time <clears throat> has closed the ears to the mind and a day at a time opens up the ears to the heart and keeps me a place of reasonableness and being teachable and understanding my place as spoken a very, very big wheel called Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to be the wheel. My first ninety days I thought I invented the wheel, but um, <laughs> you know how that goes but I'm just very grateful to be a spoke in a very big wheel and still be a student. We teach every once in a while, but have a beginner's mind because that makes me teachable and uh, keeps me right sized. Uh, June 23rd, 1988, my separation from alcohol. I will share this on the front end. Very often on this journey of recovery, I never saw God coming because my experience has been God doesn't always announce his arrival. He just shows up. What I've shared so many times from so many podiums is, I put a question out to God and I expect the answer to come back in a neatly wrapped gift box with a little ribbon on and says, 2 Peter from God, here's your answer. <laughs> and very often it comes through a series of circumstances. Very often it'll come through, you know, the wet drunk who reeks, who's just walking in the door with a 12 step call. It'll come to, at a meeting I'd never been to and someone says something and something clicks. And over and over and over again I realized how dark I had been until I stepped into the light and I had nothing to do with that, I was brought there. There's a difference I found in AA between being motivated to do something and being called to do something. One is pure and from the soul, the other one usually involves my ego and attachments. And on June twenty third, 1988, you know, I had six treatment centers behind me. I tried Alcoholics Anonymous, mostly drunk, they said come sober, it might stick. You know, I would go to a group and be pinned up against the back of the wall and go around the room and share, raise my hand, and condemn everyone in the room. And the only thing AA said was keep coming back. They never threw me out. And I learned early on, no matter how sick someone is, they only can do as good as the light they're standing on so we don't shoot the wounded. Where else are they going to go for sobriety? But Alcoholics Anonymous on June 23rd, 1988, I'm laying in this hallway and uh, I remember thinking because I was so sick I came to once again in the back of this abandoned building I came to once again and I reeked I hadn't bathed in I don't know how long I had these construction boots and the right boot had no front my sweat socks were black I reeked I had a turtleneck on and a zip-up jacket I was cold and sweating at the same time it was June in New York it was really hot and muggy I don't recall last time I had a meal, and I would go into instant withdrawals, as soon as I'd wake up, as soon as I'd go a little bit long without a drink, I'd go into instant withdrawals, and I'm shaking, I'm I'm vibrating, and my belly hurts, and I'm sweating, and I'm cold, and I just really need a drink right now, and I had the realization, the aha moment, as bad as I need a drink, if I get a drink in me, I'm going to die, and I don't want to die, for the very first time in my life, I did not want to die, But if I don't get a drink of me, I'm going to die. And I was at that jumping off place. What do I do? Now back then, if you were a man especially, and you talked to me about religious things, spiritual things, godly things, talked about the carpenter, I despised you for doing that because you were weak and cowardly if you were a man talking about God. God was for women and children, not men. Men had a man up and kind of do John Wayne through life. And any man who talked about God was weak and cowardly. I despised God when I was about 14 years old. About six months before my first drink, my mom was alcoholic. My mom had psych issues. My mom was addicted to pills. My mom went in and out of uh, asylums. We call them treatment centers today. Asylum after asylum after asylum. Straight jackets, all of it. Suicide attempts. And when she finally committed suicide, I knew God was just a cruel jokester. Because if there really was a God, he would have gave me a mom, apple pie, and everything was going to be warm and fuzzy. It wasn't like that at all. If there really was a God, my dad would have taught me how to play baseball. My dad would have had the fireside chats with me. And my dad makes Tony Soprano look like Tinkerbell, so that wasn't happening. (laughs) So here I am in this hallway. I made a plea to God this particular day. Please take, these were my exact words, please take me from this. I don't want to die. I was not thinking about Alcoholics Anonymous, or going back into treatment, or seeing a therapist, anything like that. I don't want to die. That's as raw as it could possibly be, and perhaps as honest as I will ever be for the remainder of my days. There was no lurking notion, no reservation, nothing I can hook into. It was me and death. It was looking at my own demons for the first time. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. And what ensued is something that I could not even fathom at the time. And if you're new in Counting Days, this sounds like Hocus Pocus at a Walt Disney commercial, but trust me, this happens, this this kind of stuff happens when we're in the world of the spirit. This is the stuff that God shows mercy on us when we are not capable of taking care of ourselves. How God will prove himself over and over and over And I continue to disprove and he keeps showing up. See, what I've learned is this. God is pursuing everyone in this room, whether we like it or not. God is begging to have a relationship with every one of us, whether we like it or not. God is patient. I need to be patient. God is seeking us out. We were called to sanctity, whether we like it or not. We're born to be saints, whether we like it or not. That's just the real deal. And I can do whatever I want with that. But the truth is the truth. See, a lot of truths I walk into Alcoholics Anonymous, ideas, attitudes, and beliefs that I thought were true until I find out they're no longer true. As I begin to wake up, things go by the wayside, and I find a new truth. And there is only one truth. We hear in AA, we hear out there, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. It begs the question, what's the truth? Well, there are some truths. i got to pay my tax or I go to jail. I need a roof over my head. I need a job to pay for the roof over my head. One day I'm going to die. I need to put food in my body and keep it hydrated. I'll get sick and die. Those are some truths. But there is only one truth, the truth, and that's God. Whether I like it or not. I could try to outrun that all I want, but I can't. It's about time I start having a relationship with this truth. And when I did, through my life being forged out on an anvil that was really uncomfortable, I stood in the sunlight at last, as Bill said. It was a heck of a road getting there. So here I am in this abandoned building. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. And I swear there was no one in this hallway. It was just me and the filth that was in there. And it was what, what began to take place was this thing came over me. And it would be as if Kent leaned over into this ear and whispered something in my ear. And it went like this. Enough, I have other work for you to do. And I said, oh my God, I'm hearing voices. This is what they talked about in treatment. You're going to hear voices and see things, and you're going to buy wet brain, and then it's all over. I was petrified. My first encounter with God was the gift of desperation. It wasn't warm and fuzzy. It didn't even feel godly. Enough, I have other work for you to do. And I said, oh my God, I'm out of my mind. I'm completely out of my mind. And I was petrified. Here's the good news. I was completely out of my mind. (laughs) Because when I'm in my mind, all I hear is me and my ego and my pride and my seven deadly sins. And it goes on and on. The resentments just get manufactured. I think I'm hearing God. I'm hearing me. I think God's talking to me. It's my own ego. But when we're out of our mind, that is a peaceful place. If we think about from the time we woke up this morning till right now, how kind and loving was your mind to you? Probably not so good. Probably sitting here going, how come the committee didn't ask me to speak? I'm spiritual. <laughs> he asked me to tell the truth. And even currently, do you ever get to that place where, um, you may be praying, maybe meditating, maybe tending to your children, maybe painting, doing something, gardening, whatever it might be, listening to music, and you're in the moment? I run a lot to get there. There's no before, there's no later on, you just feel the nearness of your creator. And then the mind says, don't get too comfortable, because remember this. And we start the, the whole thing all over again. Why can't I stay in that place? Because I insist on control. I insist on running the show myself. But here I was in this hallway. uh, Enough I have other work for you to do. And uh, what took place was my life began to change. It didn't feel warm and fuzzy. It did not feel, golly, this gift of desperation. In Alcoholics Anonymous, I can still experience that kind of bottoming out and still getting a gift of desperation. Pain brings suffering. Suffering brings me to a willingness to change, and change brings freedom. The problem is many of us die going there. Because what my illness will do in Alcoholics Anonymous, if I'm not treating it, if it's way beyond going to me, mean, because me is alone I'm not going to treat what ails me. As my sponsor reminds me often, I don't come to AA just to stop drinking. I come to AA to remedy this thing called alcoholism. Because I don't want to die from And I want to die with alcoholism. I can die from alcoholism, whatever, ever picking up a drink. My illness will go underground and resurface in other areas. And it has fear sprees, money sprees, sex sprees, food sprees, thinking sprees, some sort of spree, gambling sprees. Because I can't be here right now. I can't be present with you. I can't be the place of ease and comfort because this is going so fast. I need to get into something to get away from this. And then I emerge remorse with a firm resolution. I'm not going to go back in there again, but there I am again. I need to work out in the AA, the spiritual gym, and get spiritually fit. It's the only thing that keeps me from pick, picking up a drink. When our book says what we were like, what happened, and what we were like now, in a nutshell, what I was like. I couldn't stop drinking. What happened? This power than myself. Intervene. What I'm like now, I have a relation with that power that continues to intervene. Is one thing i got to be really hip to. If what I'm like now looks like what I was like, then it's possible nothing ever happened. Because <laughs> I can be in AA a long time and still look like the guy who just walked in the door. I just mask it better. I cover it up better. I dress better. I got all the AA cliches and you think I'm doing good until you see me in a parking lot trying to pick up Mary who's got three days back. I can get around here, why, cause I've done this. I've done stuff like cover up the stuff. You know, eight years, ten years, and the old timer says, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I just did an inventory. Because I was too afraid to say I'm not good and I'm afraid again. I'm afraid of life. I'm afraid I'm gonna fail. I'm afraid I'm gonna succeed. I'm just afraid. I wake up afraid. I'm afraid someone's gonna really find me out in AA and kick me out of here. I'm afraid. But little by slowly, the chopping wood and carrying wood and keep it broken down and pruning the tree and pruning the tree and pruning the tree. And when I came to the realization how flawed and broken I am, another book says I'm weak flesh, sold unto the slavery of sin. The things I want to do, I can The things I want to do, I do. I'm the car that drives around, that leaks oil. That's my condition. Broad, broken and flawed. And the realization of that is freedom. That in my strength, I want to experience God, but it's in my greatest weakness. When I'm vulnerable, when I'm down on my knees begging for mercy, I find strength there. How neat is that? That I don't have to be in AA and be perfect and glossy. I don't have to give you a talk that, you know, is glossy and perfect and look how great I'm doing because I'm behind the podium. Nonsense. People get drunk that way. But here I am. And I got as my sponsor says, so here we are. That particular day, my dad was in a town called Atlantic City, New Jersey on June 23, 1988. He had been there for a few days spending time with his wife. And while he was there, he had a feeling, as he told me at my first AA birthday, he had a feeling, what he described in his gut, that I was in trouble. We hadn't spoken quite some time. I hadn't seen my family in a long time. But he had a feeling in his gut that I was in trouble. And he told his wife, I need to find my son, Peter. And he trekked his way back as a few hours from way south Jersey into New York. And he was driving around that day, and he found me hanging out on a street corner, frantic. I have no idea what it's like to see your firstborn. In an Italian family, the first male born, there's a little expectation here, Pope or President. I mean, that's how this goes. <laughs> I have no idea what it's like to see your firstborn standing on a corner, frantic, dying of alcoholism. I think my dad perhaps could have put his head around it if I was in a hospital bed dying of some other terminal illness, but he couldn't get I was dying of a terminal illness called alcoholism. And he got out of the car and he called my name. And the very first thing I said to him was, Dad, I'm fine. Ego's a hard son of a gun to die. And when he got close to me, I collapsed. And I remember that day like it happened yesterday because I remember my dad embracing me and holding me up. We hadn't been that close physically or emotionally in years. And he kept saying something as he was holding me up because I was done. I had run out of road. This was it. I had met my match. Alcohol was my master. I knew that. He kept saying, I'm not going to lose my son to this. I'm not going to lose my son to this. And for years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would tell you how I surrendered. I quit. And for years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would tell you how hard I work in my, my program, how hard I'm working on my steps, how hard I'm working on the fellowship to be a good member, how hard I'm doing something. And then an elder in AA taught me something. That I got surrendered. I didn't have it in me to surrender. I didn't even have it in me to say, I need help. But that was given to me by God's mercy. I would have continued to drink and by the end of the day, and I would have probably been dead. But God gave me the gift of desperation. God gave me a spirit of surrender. God gave me wholeness of mind. And currently gives me endurance and courage and strength and direction. And feeds me through you. Because I've done nothing for my recovery. Scripture says... Not by works lest any man shall boast. I'm not here to tell you how hard I work, I'm here to tell you how God how hard God's working for me. And why? The wretch I am, because he loves me and you, and the person with one day back, and the person with four days back, and the old timer with fifty years. Did God doesn't say well, I like you more than you? In my mind he does, but not in God's mind. and I got placed in my seven treatment center it was the same old thing because after 10 days of being in treatment I wanted to get out mm-hmm. Dean insidious since of the first drink was galloping back see it's been a while since I've had a drink almost 31 years I don't think about drinking or non-conference approved dry goods but that doesn't mean they are not thinking <laughs> about me most days I don't act alcoholic I'm not in the isms Most days. But every day, the isms are thinking about me. And they will disguise themselves in money. They will disguise themselves in working hard. They will disguise themselves in a relationship. They will disguise themselves to come into the back door and own me once again. Because my illness, once we dead, will settle for me, drunk, and do anything to get me there. See what I do here behind the podium giving you a talk? I get the opportunity to do this often. But if I think this represents recovery, I'm in deep, deep trouble. This a little piece. And God forbid I take responsibility for this talk, meaning, wow, I gave a great talk. I gave a terrible talk. That's out of my hands. Let this talk be a reflection of talking to my sponsor on Mondays and working with people Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The prayer, the meditation, all the chopping wood and carrying wood. Let this be a reflection of that, what God's done for me, taking me from a scrap heap to in front of you tonight. Let this be evidence, this conference of the great God we get to encounter in Alcoholics Anonymous and nothing less than that great, great fact. Let AA be a pep rally for the power of God. Let us shout God from the rooftops in our sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and not fall prey to the nonsense that's going out there where God has become a bad word. Let God be precious and sacred in Alcoholics Anonymous because at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to keep me from a drink is God. And you don't have to buy any of that. You really don't. And if you're a hard drinker, a drinker, I'm a lunatic to you. <laughs> That's in any land, Pete. That's really extreme. And you don't have to buy that. I know the extremes I went to for a drink. The compromising places I, and positions I put myself in to get a drink. Any cost to get a drink. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous. What I do here is I kiss in a newborn on the cheek. So I'm in this treatment center about 10 days and I want to walk out the door because the detox was just horrific. And I'm getting thirsty. My mind's saying, just get a drink, just a pill, just get a bump and you go back to group and talk about your feelings and your issues. Just got to get out of here. <laughs> and by the grace of God, they sent me out to uh, Minnesota and I wound up living out there uh, for a year. And I just always like to plug this meeting because Minnesota pretty much put me back together via God They took me to a meeting called the Three Legacies meeting somewhere in Minneapolis. I was now living in a town called Hastings, Minnesota. It was at least an hour drive. Here's what AA men did for me. A new guy who was inappropriate, didn't speak proper, didn't dress proper, didn't behave proper. They just knew I was new. They would drive from Minneapolis all the way to Hastings on a Friday night. They would pick me up and take me back to Minneapolis for the meeting. And they'd go eat afterwards. I had no money. I was wearing my brother's clothes. And they would order for me because they knew I had no money. and They wouldn't ask me. They'd just bring him a burger. They'd give me a little something to go home. They'd get back in the car and take me back to Hastings. And then they'd drive home. Every Friday night they did that because they knew I was new. And their sobriety was so important to them. They knew by giving out all away they would feed their own soul. And they didn't ask for applause This is what A.A. Men did for me. I owe. And so when I get a call like this, this is a privilege, this is an honor to come speak. But I'm okay sitting in the back row too hearing another speaker and just being a part of the sacred fellowship, being a part of the, the fellowship of the spirit and the spirit within the fellowship. How blessed, how blessed from where I've been. To tell you in a general way what I was like, what happened, what I'm like now, how I'm trying to be today, I'm 14 years old. I grew up in a place called Brooklyn, New York. Like you know, by the way, I speak, right? (laughs) Uh, We had guys there change how it works into how you're doing. Um, (laughs) Some of the guys in my home group thought The Godfather was an educational movie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's sad, it's true. They took me fishing one time, I gotta tell you the story. They took me fishing one time. And um, <clears throat> I was a new kid on the block. So they were gonna go rent a boat in this area called Sheepshead Bay Brooklyn, a little fishing town, and head out to sea and fish. Now these guys never ever went fishing before. <laughs> you had Sally Pleats, Tony News, Frankie Wall Street, all these guys, right? And how did I get dressed to go fishing on a Saturday morning like pretty much like I look right now? <laughs> yeah. And so we're out on a boat for a little while. Now, these guys had maybe a third-grade education. They weren't the brightest bulb in a box. And it was like, hey, you want to get sober, come fishing. And um, (laughs) so we're out on a boat a little while, and Sally Boy catches this fish. I don't know what kind of fish it is. And it's, you know, flipping and flapping on on the deck. Now, most fishermen know what to do with that. What he does is grab it in and he's trying to punch it. (laughs) It hits the deck. He's trying to kick it. And he finally, and I'm I'm, I'm not making this up, he grabs it and goes to lean overboard with the fish's head in the water. We said, Sally boy, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to drown him. (laughs) 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 These are my spiritual gurus. Now you know why I'm grateful to be here tonight. <laughs> so, 14 years old, um, spring, summertime, almost six months after January 1974, when my mom uh, took her life, and uh, waking up to that around three o'clock in the morning, I was literally. I can almost feel it as I tell you, uh, frozen. I was in a lower bunk. My kid brother was up above me. My baby brother was against the wall in another bed, and I was on the lower bunk, frozen with fear. I hear my dad wailing on a 911 call, come quick. I think my wife was dead. And I hear my grandparents running up because he called them, and I couldn't move. I never had this before. I could not move. She finally did it. And about six months later, uh, I'm on the corner, the guys are drinking cold 45 beer, the older guys. They were, you know, men. They were worldly. They told me about life. They were about 16 years old, rebels without a clue. And I'm trying to find out about the birds and bees and how to do life from these men. And they're drinking cold 45 beer. And I watched. And they seem to be free. You know, roughhousing, music, talking to the girls, you know, being men. And I'm fear-based insecure and I got this horrible stuff going on. I'm the kid in the neighborhood whose mom died. I don't say this for shock value, about roughly ages eight and ten. I called it a distant relative who was abusing me sexually for a couple of years. I couldn't tell anyone. He told me bad things were gonna happen to me if I did. You walk around with this kind of stuff. You know, you're polluted already. You got the mom stuff, telling people she died of cancer, and everyone knew she committed suicide. I'm trying to, you know, pass this off as something respectable. You walk into the classroom, everyone gets quiet. That's the kid, you know, because of that sexual abuse. I will tell you, you know, you're growing up at 14 and 15. I'm attracted to girls, but I'm saying to myself, if this the guy did this to me, maybe, maybe I have a, uh, an identity problem within me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. It's a horrible way to grow up, questioning everything. I knew you knew. And I always felt dirty on the inside because I can never get in there. I was a very, very gifted musician growing up. I was a good little athlete and a really good student, but no matter what I did, it wasn't enough. I had to accomplish the, the super just to feel okay with you. Crawling out of my skin constantly till this one Saturday night when I put my hand in there, and I took a few pops off this quarter beer. And nothing happened when it went down. But So I drank a little bit more, and I drank a little bit more, and you know what happened. I start to feel pretty okay with me. I start to feel, I can breathe again. Bill says, I had arrived. I finally showed up for life. I showed up on the corner of 75th Street and 20th Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, I showed up for life finally and had that warm, easy feeling around me. The girls got prettier. I got better looking. I had beer muscles. I was like Al Pacino around midnight. I love the effect produced by alcohol. (laughs) The pain of losing my mom and all that was gone. The fear of my... Everything was taken away. It removed everything. I didn't know, fast forward, it was going to take me too. I couldn't see that I knew nothing about craving I knew nothing about uh, mental obsession I knew nothing about malady. I was going to quickly find out that I wanted a drink that I need to have a second drink and then for some reason the third and fourth drink screams louder than the first and second one and I'm on this any lens run now because I must drink I got to drink it's going to be bad but I need a drink I'm going to get locked up but I need a drink I'll figure it out later I need a drink and I couldn't outrun it no matter what I put in the way when the guys went home around midnight, I remember going into instant panic, please don't end this, it's the first time in my life, I'm feeling okay about everything, now I don't know if they turn out to be alcoholics, I know a lot of those guys are in jail, some of them died, some of them were killed, but I had this thing, please don't end it, Marion said it last night, was a panacea for my ills, I found a remedy that worked, and I want more, I had no idea it was a, it was a, a gateway to, to hell. And the following Saturday, I got drunk, and I, got, I was getting drunk on weekends, and progression does what progression does. And it rolled into during the week, and my dad would have these very stern talks with me about what I was turning into. But I didn't really pay too much attention because I tasted the honey, and I want more. And I was willing to take some of the heat for that. And everything about me, my music started to get, on, get put on the shelf. My relationships, the guys I was hanging out with, that kind of declined. The type of woman I was hanging around, that declined. My morals declined. The things that were really important to me weren't important. What was important to me was hustle up money because we're going to go drinking. Hustle up money because we're going to go drinking. My family moved from Brooklyn to uh, another borough and... Um, I used to wake up in the morning and look for money so I could just scoot out the house and get some beer and things like that. And one morning, I couldn't find any money, so I stole my dad's checkbook, and I took a check off the back of the book, and I forged his name, and I went down to the local store. Now, they knew my dad. They knew who my dad was. They are pretty much afraid of my dad. And I go down and say, look, my dad gave me this check. He had no cash on it. He said to cash it. And with some reluctance, they cashed it. They didn't want to deal with my dad. And so I go to the back and buy some beer and walk out the door. I thought I hit like Powerball. This was a great thing. I steal a check every single morning because I knew nothing about something called checking statements. (laughs) (laughs) About as sharp as a bowling ball back then. Um, And one day, you know, my dad put the pieces of the puzzle together. I'm not coming home. I'm getting nasty, I'm getting arrogant, I'm hanging out with strange people, I'm not making music like I was, and um, my, I called home, my brother said, the old man's looking for you, you're in trouble, what did you do now? My dad got the stuff in the mail, checking all the forged checks, and he came looking for me, and here's how this played out. I've told this story so many times, I can't believe what an idiot I was, um, I'm sitting in the car. One day, next to this woman who was in love with, because we got drunk together the night before, and still look good. <laughs> you ever notice when you're drinking and you, you got a good load on, and you look at her and you swear you're hanging out like with Bo Derek, and when you come to you in a hotel the next morning, she looks more like Bo Diddley, and you want to have into to that jam, you know? Um, for you youngsters, Bo Derek was a beautiful woman, and Bo Diddley was not a woman. <clears throat> um. <laughs> so I'm sitting in this car, and I think I'm a player. You know, <laughs> now in Brooklyn, the way we used to drive is the seat goes all the way back, the windows go all the way down, the music goes all the way up. You open up your shirt down here. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I got like, you know, a, a Kmart you know bracelet on. I got the the, the Walmart pinky ring going. You know,
1: and you do to lean. You lean
0: way over like this, and I'm looking at her, and she's looking at me, and I'm thinking, "You're so blessed to be with me." <laughs> I'm like, I'm like Dirty Harry and Snoop Dogg rolled into one, you know. <clears throat> and here I am, Mr. Player, and the old man drives up. Now this is like if you ever seen Goodfellas. Remember the character Robert De Niro played? That's my father. He's not happy when he's in a good mood. And he drove up, and uh, he jumped out of the car, and he saw me, and he screamed my name. Now, here's how I handled it like any player would. And it went just like this. Honey, that's my dad. You talk to him. I'm running away. (laughs) And my dad caught me, and the first thing I did was blame her. And I blamed the guys in the neighborhood. And then I pulled out the Trump card. Mom committed suicide, I'm all mixed up, I don't know what I'm doing with my life anymore, and I start crying, please, that'll help me. I just want to get off the hook, which is usually my MO, I just get off the hook. If I say I'm sorry, you say, okay, let's move on, and when I say I'm sorry without making amends, I'm sorry is totally selfish. I just want to get a pass. I'm not really caring about how deep I wounded you. I'm sorry, just let me off the hook and let's move along till I do it again. And I'll say I'm sorry again. It goes on and on and on. And what my dad did was he said, we're putting you in something called a treatment center. I knew nothing about you. I didn't even know what a treatment center was. But off I was to this place in Amityville, Long Island. When I drove up, I realized that's where I had placed my mom about 20 times. It was a rude awakening. And I walk in there and I'm, I'm doing this treatment. I got a detox, come off the booze. I had not conceded to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic. I was doing everything to feed the ego. And, 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 and instead of starving the ego. I was doing nothing to, to feed the spirit like I get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Anything spiritual was weak and cowardly. And so I do the 28-day spin-drying treatment. I talk about my feelings and my issues and all this other stuff. I sit in these groups. They show me all these charts. We watch all these cassettes and all these videos about what alcoholism does. It didn't apply to me. I'm not an alcoholic. I got caught in 28. I fell in love about six times in treatment. That's another thing I did. And 28 days later, I'm discharged, and I did a lot of push-ups and sit-ups, and I went right back to the same vicious cycle, except I didn't want to get caught this time. And I made my second and third and fourth and fifth treatment center. My dad got me a job as a a longshoreman on the Brooklyn docks. Uh, Longshoreman was one of the most powerful unions you could belong to at the time. In fact, it was so powerful, if someone got fired on the East Coast, there would be a wildcat strike across the country, all the way to California, work stoppage. You can never get fired from this job, right? You cannot get fired from this job. I got fired from that job. <laughs> I was making serious money, um, working hard, and drinking all the time, but I got into some other non-conference-approved dry goods that demanded I drink a lot more. And I got into some other dry goods that I usually my chin was in my lap for hours. <laughs> and I was useless to everyone. And then I started to steal and, and borrow money from the wrong people, and they would come looking for me. And one thing after another, and I got fired from that place. And I landed in my fifth treatment. center. And I always like to share about this is when I encountered my demons, eyeball to eyeball, if you will, my alcoholism. So at the time I thought it was a curse. Why is God doing this to me? What God was doing was giving me my truth. Prepping me to get here, if you will. And walk me to the edge of a cliff where my nails were dug in and seemed like no way out. How grim is that? How awful when there's no way out. But what Marie talked about, my sponsors told me, God now speaks and I can hear him through the brick walls when there's no more options. As long as I have an option, I'm taking it. I had to get here when there's no more options. It was go to AA, find God, or drink and die. Accept spiritual help. A book says, oh, go on to the bitter end. I'm living the bitter end and it's killing me. I go into this fifth treatment center and um, after 28 days, the folks who worked in there, hardworking folks, said, you can't go home. You're going to drink, you're going to stop the safety and you're going to die. And the other stuff you're putting in your body is going to kill you for sure. And what they did, they held on to me for nine weeks in this fifth treatment center. Now, back in the day with a 28-day model, nine weeks was unheard of, unless you were in a psych ward where I probably should have been. And so they, they kind of did some things to keep me there for nine weeks. Now, guys, after nine weeks of being in a treatment, I am detoxed, I'm going to the gym, I'm working out, I'm participating in group, I'm putting on weight. Got color back in my face, I'm bathing, I'm eating, I look somewhat human at this point. And after nine weeks, I remember thinking, I'm pretty good because I'm not thinking too much about drinking right now. I think I'm good to go. And they said, we have to discharge you, and it's Saturday, that's your go date. I said, I'm good, I'm fine, I know what I need to do. The alcoholics you to the next drink. I got discharged on a Saturday, crossed the threshold onto Sunrise Highway in Amityville, Long Island. I was smacked with me and my alcoholism. I was just hit in the face with like a cold, wet mop. I couldn't believe it. I was anxious. I was nervous. My stomach started to get fluttery. Anxiety in my chest. And I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? I was good in the cocoon, I'm out here, and no one really cares that I just left treatment. The market stores don't care I just left treatment. The people on the highway are not going to stop to let me cross because I just left treatment. No one cares. And I will tell you, 31 almost years sober, out there, not many people care I'm sober 31 years. When I go to the supermarket, they want their money. <laughs> Listen, I just spoke at Kentucky State Convention. Do I have to pay for my groceries? Yeah. Saturday, I didn't sleep. I couldn't carry on a conversation with my dad or my brothers. I couldn't eat. I had no appetite. My stomach is upside down. I'm a bundle of nerves. I'm vibrating, and my body didn't need alcohol. Sunday, the same thing. It was even worse. On Monday morning, I get in the car, and I drive all the way down to South Brooklyn, a really long drive from where I was in Staten Island, New York, all the way to South Brooklyn, and I go to the old liquor store. He's closed, and I'm pacing back and forth, waiting for him to open. He's got to open up soon, and I'm pacing back and forth. Guys, my body was sick. But it didn't need alcohol. There was nothing wrong with my body. I had nine weeks of separation. I was as sober. I was going to be for the rest of my life. I had no post-acute withdrawal, nothing. But my mind was another story. It said, we need a drink to the point where I'm feeling sick again. I really need a drink. I didn't need a drink. My mind says, yeah, you do. And I bought the pint. It went down. I finished it as fast as I can. And you know what happened? The shaking stopped. I can breathe again. I felt put back together again. I had power again. Isn't it funny? I always pick up the first drink sober. As an alcoholic. My body didn't need booze. I was sober, as sober physically as I was going to be if I stayed sober the rest of my life. I always pick up the first drink sober. I never pick up the first drink drunk. I pick up the second drink that way, the third drink, the tenth drink. And I finished the pint. I was back in control. I felt power. I got it together. Okay, I'm good to go. Except I'm alcoholic. I had to go back in and buy another pint. It demanded I get another pint because it's game on now and by the time I finish the, first, the second pint I'm feeling kind of nice so nice I go to the projects and buy pills now I'm out of money so I'm back to hustling on the street to get another pint and as the big book says Dust started one more journey to the asylum for Jim thus started one more journey to hell for me and I didn't see it coming I can't see my alcoholism come out book talks about suddenly the thought crossed my mind it would be great if I saw suddenly across the street the illness I call up Mickey suddenly across the street what do I do? My alcoholism is going to come in any minute. Tell me what to do. 90 meetings in 90 days, right? Yeah. Can't see suddenly coming. I, I, I keep spiritually fit. I love the effect produced by God. But there might come a day, and there have been many, where I'm really going to need those muscles on that particular day, except I don't know what day it is. My dad had got me this little apartment in Brooklyn, and I sold everything in it before I got thrown out. TV, carried the big old-fashioned TVs out on my shoulder. You know, clock radio, the shoes and boxes, clothes and garment bags. My dad furnished this whole place. I sold the whole thing, brought the Bowery in. Bed was blood-stained and soiled. Uh. And uh, they kicked me out of there. And the trap doors have trap doors. I spent a day and a half in my sixth treatment center. And I walked out the door. I can even fathom doing another detox and going to one more group. If I hear one more group and ask me, how am I feeling today? I'm going to throw a chair through a window. <laughs> I am hopeless. You don't understand. I'm just, I want, can you let me die? Can you just let me die and get this thing? This is one big mistake. was a mistake. I'm afraid of, I hurt Life is problematic even now. It's unfair even now. We live in a world of impermanence always. And I'm trying to hook in to control the stuff that is not controllable. In the most sacred moment of my day, on awakening, going to my God and praying and begging for mercy, how often do I seek control in there for an outcome that I want? I'm even seeking control. I'm begging to God, but I'm looking for an outcome. I'm trying to control God. I can try to control everything. Because the ego does not want me to let go absolutely, completely abandon myself to God. I heard a gentleman say this, it was just this aha moment. I thought as a member of AA, I have to take care of myself. Work out, get a job, raise a family, take care of myself, look good, sound good, be good, do all those things. That's not my job. To take care of myself. That's God's job. I'm playing God. My job is to seek God's will, practice fidelity to God, and carry it out. That's it. He will give me a job when he sees fit. He will give me money, take me money, give me help, call me home. It's all his deal, not mine. And here I am trying to control God and what God does. And what tremendous freedom, and as frightening as it is to say, God, here's my life, none of my business. Not being apathetic about it. Where do you want me to go? And I wish I could tell you, I follow that to the letter every day. But sometimes I get scared and I grab again. Sometimes I think I know the outcome, I hold on again. Sometimes money takes hold of me and it owns me. And I know sometimes you're talking about me, it's not good I'm going to get you. <laughs> That's that other guy. So we all got the other guy. Ladies got the other lady. We got the sober one and we got that other one. That's gone dormant. Did you ever pray in the morning, get up off your knees, go, oh my God, I'm Moses this morning. This is incredible. <laughs> I had visions, I heard bells. I'm going to part the season in about 20 minutes. I'm, not, I'm levitating. Then you get in your car, and you catch some traffic, and you turn into Satan. <laughs> what happened? That's that other guy. And he's dying to get in there. And then June 23rd, 1988 showed up. I didn't see that coming either. But it was through the gift of desperation. Our big book says alcohol finally, finally, finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. When someone is reasonable, you can talk to them. You can negotiate. When someone, he's not reasonable, he won't listen. That's me. But alcohol beat me up enough to be reasonable. And what God does, not beat me up, but what God does for me is continually prune the tree. Prune the tree via the sponsor, via of inventory, via, through prayer meditation. Prune the tree because a bad fruit bears bad fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. And no one can eat, if you will, from the vine. A good tree will bear good fruit and many can eat from the vine. And what do we do in Alcoholics Anonymous? We feed each other. And sometimes it's a 90-day of feeding the 25-year guy. But that's what we do. We feed each other. God got me sober not to have a job, not to get a car. He probably was not even interested in that. It was to stay sober and help another alcoholic achieve sobriety, practice principles in all my affairs, love him, love others. That's my job. That's why God got me sober. It was a contract. I'm pulling you in to do some work for me. On My terms, am I willing to let go absolutely and play on God's terms, or I still want to follow my rules? Page 27 says, Ideas, attitudes, and emotions will once the guiding force of Elijah men are cast aside not worked on, not observed, cast aside like bad garbage. How free do I want to be? And I will tell you, I want to be as free as I can, and sometimes I implode, I get my own way. Sometimes what gets in the way is the way. I don't like the outcome. I don't like where this is taking me. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, you asked me to walk a walk I never did before, down a road I never saw before, take 12 steps into my life I never knew before, and to worship a God and serve a God I know nothing about. How can I serve a God when I'm a slave to everything else? And the only thing that allowed me to do that and chop wood and carry water was the fire that burns in my heart and your soul as well to get right with something I look for in the bottom of a whiskey bottle. It's still there. It's still there. It's that God DNA. And you don't have to believe that if you don't want to until you bottom out and say, okay, where's that God DNA? What was that guy talking about? Is life my master? Is money my master? Prestige my master? Speaking my master? I know some cats. This is all they do. This is all they do. Call them up. you you angelic here. Meet them in the lobby. Oh, my God. That's not the same guy. My job is to be with this God. Go where he wants me to go. Do what he wants me to do. Say what he wants me to say. It's none of my business. Mm. So I found a sponsor in Brooklyn. And after about, I don't know, eight years, he started to get off the path, and I prayed to God, "Please show me a teacher." And this gentleman, Mark H from Texas, showed up for a, a fellowship in the Spirit in Queens, New York. Bless that conference. And um, I asked him to respond to me. We began going through the work again. I was with Mark for a long time, and Mark went home to God. And um, I had a meeting Mickey. One time in Colorado at a Fellowship of the Spirit, and we would talk now and again. Fast forward a few years, we'd talk now and again, and uh, I'm at this uh, Ohio State, a uh, Buckeye roundup or something, and, um, oh, you're yeah? okay. yeah. here? Great time, thank you. You treated me well. And uh, so I called Mickey up. And he says, Peter, how long are we going to keep talking like this until you make a commitment? You want me to sponsor you or not? I think I was the Saturday night banquet speaker. You don't talk to me like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I says, yes, can you please help me? And he, I, he said, I'd love to. This is what he did. He says, you got a notepad and pen? I said, I'll call you right back. I'll go, go up to my room. I no pad and pen and I was in the lobby talking to him on his cell phone. I said, okay, I got it. He said, I'd like you to draw a circle and a triangle, and that's where he started me. He reduced me to ashes in five minutes. So I thought he was going to give me some Dead Sea Scrolls, something out of the Bible that no one knows, something in the big book that was only kept to the, the, the elders in the AA. We're going to start with a circle and a triangle. The ego went boom. And the journey began. And my 10 and 11 life was enhanced. I started to see things differently. You know, there was a time in meditation where I needed bells and chimes and sage and this and that and candles. I had an orchestra. I had the house burning down. I had all this stuff going on. And I'm paying attention to that. know the only thing that's really praying and meditating is the bells, the chimes, and the sage and the ash, right? And I started to worship idols and things like that and even know that was going on. And it's been reduced to silence. I'll read. I read a lot. I study a lot. work with a lot. But in that time, I offer prayers to God. I pray for other people. Your will and not mine be done. And I go into the sacred silence to hear and the sacred darkness to see. And it's up to him what he wants to give me. And sometimes it's just quiet time. I like to think of myself as a member of Good Standing in Alcoholics Anonymous and also now in my church, which is extremely important to me. It wasn't always like that. I like to think maybe on most days I stand in more light than I did in the dark. What I've learned, and I'm happy to report to you, is that God hears the soul. And if when I come from the soul, when I speak from the soul, when I come out of the soul, it's right, the, tr- the, the challenge is to silence the mind. The soul knows where to go, the soul knows what to say, the soul knows how to be. But I got the mind in the way. Am I willing to be fundamentally changed into something new? I must, because if the old guy shows up, I'm drunk. And I'll just close with this, this story, how God knows. And very often I doubt he shows up again, you get the God wink, I like to call it. I'm drunk, blind drunk, cursing God. Hating God, sitting on the edge of this bed, I remember a little bit of it, screaming at God, a lot of four-letter ugly words at God, for taking my mom, how you ripped me off, I was a child, all I wanted was a hug for God's sake, you couldn't even give me that, you cruel so-and-so and went on and on and on. I remember negotiating with God. I tell you what, you bring her down, you're so powerful, this place called heaven. You bring her down, let her show up right now, let me have a hug with my mom, and I'll quit drinking. I'm negotiating with the boss. The arrogance of alcoholics. And that didn't happen. But it kind of happened nine years into sobriety. I don't remember what happened the rest of that night, but I get sober and once I get sober, I start lighting candles. I told you, like, this morning I was talking about how I go to church before I start actually attending mass. I go to church tw- once a week and light two candles, faithfully from early sobriety. I was just called to do that. Go to church, one candle for mom, one for the sick and suffering, check in with the boss, make prayer and go about my day. Every week I did that faithfully. Didn't question it. I had no idea how God was plowing the field for me because I didn't have the ability to do that and when the the, the ground is ready to grow ring will start he was setting me up perfect to reveal himself to me as he does to you and one day I'm in this meditation another morning meditating and I've learned in meditation like sometimes you meditate and come out sometimes you meditate and you go someplace and you're not even conscious that you're meditating it's another dimension we're taking too, we can't plan that but I finished praying Asking a carpenter for guidance, and I go into meditation, and I get taken to this place. Where I get taken to is to a beach. I live in Florida, across the street from the beach. God knows I love the warm weather and the beach. I love just as often as I can get there and just watch the waves. It's God showing off. I feel secure. I feel safe there. And I get taken to this beach in this meditation. And off on the horizon, way out there, with a thin blue line like where the sky meets the water, a little horizontal line, appears my God. And he's walking towards me. And literally, in this meditation, literally out of his chest appears my mom. What my first sponsor explained to me, that signified the oneness that we have with God. There's no separateness with God. There's no twoness with God. There's oneness with God. There's not God end. there's just God. And she walked towards me. And I became this little eight-year-old boy. And my mom knelt down on one knee and held on to me and gave me a hug in this meditation. I've shared this so many times. When you're a little boy around eight and mama hugs you, you're gold. Nobody can screw you. You're safe. And around eight years old was when this, this predator was having this, I was going through this really bad time. And I stood up and I became an adult. And my mom held on to me as a young man. My God put his arm around my shoulder, went eyeball to eyeball. And I, I, I can't even use the words, I can't come up with the right words to articulate the peace and the amount of love. I and mean, there were no words spoken through this meditation. But what he, can, what he transmitted to me was, she's okay, she's with me. My mom pointed off to the horizon at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flickering lights, and my mom pointed off this horizon to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flickering lights. My mom held on to me one more time, and she was weeping, and they were tears of joy, not sorrow, and I knew that. They began to walk away and became one and I come out of this meditation. I don't know how long I was in there for, but I remember I had tears rolling down my eyes and what just happened. I was, I was emotional and very confused. I don't know what these flickering lights meant. So what do you do? You call your sponsor and try to figure it out. And I call my sponsor and I said to him, this just happened to me and I don't know what the lights are. And he said to me without missing a beat, Peter, you've been lighting candles for your mom for about nine years. She got them. God heard you. My whole, I was split wide open. God's light shined through that day bright. I've never been the same. Even in my moments of doubt and skepticism and undercurrent, God, I know you got me. I know I'm in the way. Just have mercy on me. Here's the great thing about this God. He didn't say one and done. There's been many events like that as have happened. Marion says it all the time. I cannot outgive God. And God is relentless. If If I really paid attention, there's constant miracles coming down. Constantly. We're here tonight. We just went right past that one. Saturday night, 8.30, 9 o'clock, I'm sitting in an AA meeting. I'm usually arrested by now. <laughs> and as my sponsor says, so here we are. We lean on each other. A room full of broken toys. I say that with all respect. The throwaways. And somehow in that realization, we get strong and we walk. Shoulder to shoulder upon a common journey in his light for fun and for free. The only thing God wants is my soul. That's everything. And I give God my soul and he gives me a life. I give God my life and he gives me purpose. I give God my sinfulness and he gives me forgiveness. I give God my drunkenness and he gives me sobriety and i give god my sobriety he gives me alcoholics anonymous you and for this i'm overpaid that's all i got peace <laughs>